Welcome to the Tell Us Something Podcast. I'm Mark Moss. In this week's podcast, you'll hear stories about moving to Missoula, Montana from Illinois for a job, an African-American attending the Trump rally in Missoula, a young white woman in Kathmandu trying to find her place, and a field trip leader responsible for high school students from Montana as they hike through the jungle in Cambodia. Our podcast today was recorded in front of a live audience on March 18, 2018 at the Wilma in Missoula, Montana. Eight storytellers shared their true personal story on the theme, Stranger in a Strange Land. Today, we hear from four of those storytellers. Our first story comes to us from Mike Jakubczyk, who moves to Missoula from Illinois and has culture shock adjusting to life out west. Mike calls his story, Missoula, my first and last best place. Thanks for listening. How's that? It began with a vacuum cleaner propped up in the back seat of a 1969 Buick Skylark. On two numerous occasions, the vacuum cleaner would flop down and hit the tail of a West Highland White Terrier named Fuzzywig. <laughs> Unfortunately, it also disturbed our eight-month-old son, Matthew, who was seated next to Fuzzywig. The 1969 Buick Skylark was dutifully equipped to come to Montana. Two doors, no snow tires, towing a four by six U-Haul trailer, stuffed with pillows, a rocking chair, and toilet paper. We had lots of toilet paper. For some reason, my relatives in South Chicago believed that Montana was a vast tundra <laughs> devoid of any urban amenities, igloos, outhouses, and perhaps corn cobs. <laughs> Thus began our second, my second, venture into Montana. Now the first trip was a little bit more comfortable. I came on a frontier flight out of Chicago, seated next to a gentleman from Montana Power, and a graduate student named Howie, who looked a lot like Art Garfunkel, hair out to here. When we arrived at the Missoula airport, I vacated and was met very quickly by a gentleman with a beard named Evan Jordan. Evan is still with us, he's 95 years old and remains a good friend. Evan looked at me and I was dutifully attired in a Yugoslavian-made velvet blue suit. <laughs> the collar was probably, I can't go that far, out to here. And as well, there was a tie that could have very well served as a napkin. When I got off the plane, Evan looked at this and said, uh, it's not gonna work. And I said, what do you mean, sir? He said, you can't, you can't be like that. Now, I, I had no idea what he meant, but I assumed it had something to do with my attire. We got into his RV, and he learned that Howie, my seatmate, was also staying at the Executive Motor Inn. So he, in Montana fashion, offered him a ride as well. On the way there, he said, you know, Mike, ditch the suit. There's a place called a mercantile around the corner from Executive Inn. Go there, get a pair of jeans, a shirt, 
and then I think you'll be ready for the first part of the interview. I, I naturally did what I was told, because I thought this was part of the interview process attire. So I uh, went over to the, uh, the mercantile and found jeans and the shirt. And as Howie was checking in, he said, hey, you know what? Would you like a joint? <laughs> I, I was wide-eyed, and being from Chicago, I knew what he was talking about. But I figured maybe he was part of the interview process. <laughs> and I, I knew the right answer was, uh, thanks a lot, Howie, but, but, but no thanks. And uh, I thought maybe I had passed two parts of the interview, dress and moral character. So I was well on my way. <laughs> Later that evening, Evan picked me up, and we went out to a ranch in the middle of nowhere up Butler Creek. Butler Creek's out by the airport. When we arrived, there was a log cabin and an outhouse, so my relatives were actually right. I knew that was there. And they said, let's go for a trail ride. And I said, okay. Now, being from South Chicago, we're not accustomed to a lot of horses. There's some at Arlington Racetrack, but I'd never been there. So I uh, was helped on top of Thunder, <laughs> aptly named, one-eyed horse, and we trotted, we trotted out a ways in, into the forest. At some point, they all left. And there I was on thunder, sure that the camp in the cabin was somewhere this way, but not sure how the hell to get there. But thunder knew, and thunder went at his own pace. He stopped, ate grass, took me just as a little test under some brambles. <laughs> After what seemed an interminably long time, I arrived at, at, at the cabin, and sure enough, there's a campfire. There were professors that were dressed like cowboys. They did this, the interview, and I guess I did okay. I must have passed, because now I was on my way a couple of months later, in the Buick, headed to Montana. We passed through big timber and the winds, which shook the four by six trailer somewhat, onto Livingston, up an icy road, and finally arrived at our destination, Missoula, Montana. I called our host from the recreation center, the UC, which was new at that time, it had just been built a couple years earlier, and they told me how to get to Eddy Street, which is where we arrived with the four by six trailer, the dog, and the eight month old son. We immediately ingratiated ourselves to our host by one, flushing what we thought was a disposable diaper, which was not, down the drain and flooding their downstairs. <laughs> Secondly, and I don't want to embarrass my son, but Matthew did what eight month old boys sometimes do on their bright new white uh, linen sheet, and the dog chimed in by doing what dogs do in their upstairs bedroom. So now we were desperate. We started to look for, started to look for some place to live. My initial salary at the University of Montana was $11,500. I remember that specifically. So we were somewhat limited in what we could find in the Missoula area, not unlike what we have going on today. One day went past, two days went past, 
uh, our hosts were getting a little uneasy. They had a call-in show. And my wife said, help, we're desperate. A cleaning lady was just finishing up uh, vacuuming and, and cleaning the rug in what was a downstairs basement of a double wide. When I told my folks back in the Midwest, they said, oh, you're living in the basement of a trailer. How does that work? Um, <laughs> when we learned it was in the rattlesnake, I immediately thought what might be coiled in one of the closets. Uh, later on, of course, I learned that it was the creek, um, not the animal, which I was very fortunate for. So we arrived on Murray Street. We unloaded what was then uh, the rocking chair, the pillows, and the toilet paper. We had that and began uh, to settle in. We learned that there are yard sales and estate sales in our vicinity, and we took, took liberties with, with, with that venture. And that worked very, very well. We learned a great deal about where we were and what we needed to do. Many years have now passed, almost 50 years. The Buick was replaced by Jeeps, and now Subarus, of course. You knew that. <laughs> the eight-month-old boy is now a father of three sons, and recently moved here from Seattle to the university area to raise his family. The um, West Highland White Terrier has been replaced by Beagles and Bassets and Bulldogs, and now Lily, our Mastiff. What Steinbeck wrote was this, I'm in love with Montana. For other states, I have affection, respect, and recognition, even some affection at times. But with Montana, it's love. And it's difficult to analyze love when you're in it. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Mike Jakubczak is a 76-year-old retired professor who was born in South Chicago. Mike has been a Montana resident for over 40 years and is the grandfather of three boys and three girls. He is a cancer survivor and has been married to the same woman for nearly 48 years. Mike is a secret shopper and Subaru ambassador. Our next story comes to us from Jason Forges, who puts his anger aside to allow curiosity a place in his heart as he attends a Trump rally in an attempt to better understand those with whom he disagrees. Jason calls his story, You Can't Be Curious and Angry at the Same Time. Thanks for listening. All right. Yeah, nervous. <laughs> so first, when I think of the theme, I think of me being in Montana and me being black in Montana. So I say that to say that I would not be talking about my black experience here in Montana. But I guess I should ask a question first. Who here uh, went to see Donald Trump here in Missoula by show of hands? Anyone, anyone? Okay, well I did. All right. So, um, so I remember hearing something profound. Uh, it was, it was something that said you can't be angry and curious at the same time. 
And the reason being is because when you're angry, uh, you just get so caught up and stuck in yourself. So you don't have the opportunity to see other people's perspectives or their environment you're in. And obviously, I think uh, being curious is the opposite of that. So um, I really try to be curious in the spaces I enter. And I remember one day I was working, I was hearing, uh, it was on the radio, and I just hear, uh, it was during the elections, and it says Donald Trump is coming to Missoula. So uh, the people at, at work, I know I see some of the faces, it was like, like the disgusted face, and it was like weird, and I'm like, okay, but for me, like I got excited, I'm like, oh, I wanna go. So the first thing I did was, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna call some of my friends. So what I did is, I made phone call after phone call, phone call after phone call, asking, hey, you wanna go? Hey, you trying to go? You wanna go? And I got, what, no, why are you going? No, no, hard pass. <laughs> so uh, after being that discouraged, I decided to make a call and I called my friend Lisa. And uh, I called Lisa and it was kind of like that slow talk, like, hey, you know, I'm about to go to this Trump thing, you wanna go? Thinking she's gonna say no, but she said, oh yeah, I'll go. So I'm like, oh yeah, okay. And she said, oh, well, it's this Democratic rally that's going on, so we can go to that too. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll go to that. And she said, oh yeah, and I'll bring my uh, camera, we'll take pictures. I'm like, oh yeah, do that. And then she said, oh, okay, I'll drive. I'm like, oh yeah, great, I don't have to put gas in the tank. <laughs> And then she said, oh yeah, then we can do interviews. I'm like, what? And then she said, oh wait, we can do this. I'm like, wait, no, no, listen, listen. I'm just here to be curious. So uh, when I went, when we decided to leave the Democratic rally, uh, let's say she was asking me what time I wanted to get there. I don't remember the time it started, but let's say it started at two. And she asked me, what time are you trying to get there, Jason? And I'm like, 11. And she said, what, why so early? Because I said, I figured it's gonna be packed. So um, we decided to leave maybe like an hour and 30 minutes before the Democrat, or leaving the Democratic rally, hour and 30 minutes before. And it was traffic, like crazy. So we decided to take Boardwalk and, mm, thinking of Monopoly, Broadway. <laughs> All right, so we decided to take Broadway and, um, well we didn't take Broadway, I lied. We took the highway, not Broadway. And when we got off the highway, it was uh, interesting to see because um, it was a guy at the exit, he was just holding a sign and he had a wolf mask on. And with that wolf mask, uh, he had like an arrow and it said, uh, sheep this way. And I, I laughed at that and I definitely took a, a video of that just because it was creative, it was creative. But um, also uh, it got me, again, to kind of see a different perspective because um, I've been doing facilitations with, uh, I did a piece with Martin Luther King with a team of people of facilitating a discussion and of a documentary called uh, King in the Wilderness in that uh, it was talking about Dr. King and his experience going to Chicago. And uh, down south, you can see when it comes to uh, racism and how uh, profound that people was open about those things. And the idea was, hey, you know, this goes down in, in the south, but up north is a different experience. And when Dr. King went over there to Chicago, what he realized was, uh, his friend uh, talked about it, that he said uh, he's seen the most it's either the same hate or even more hate than he ever experienced in the South. And uh, when I heard that, um, I just seen people in the rally, there was like people um, having bats. They said, hey, we want King, uh, dropping, hey, nigger, we don't want you here. And all he's doing is doing a, a, a peaceful protest. And when I seen that uh, wolf mask, yeah, it was funny at the time, but also I feel like uh, sometimes when we don't agree with things, the way we go about it is 
in an unhealthy way, and that kind of was like a reflection of that. So uh, we get off the exit, we're driving, and it's uh, traffic everywhere, and we had to park way in the back. The airport's here, but what happened is you have to take the bus, and once you take the bus, it takes you to the airport. So um, we're walking over there, and as we're walking, I see um, like a sidewalk that people are waiting in line. I'm like, okay, long line, but I'm gonna make it. But then you have to follow this line in the back. I'm like, all right. Just back. Okay, that's cool. And then all of a sudden, it's a big open field, and there's tons of people, and it's just lines, lines after line, and we're at the end. So then I'm like, oh, shoot. Oh, I told you, Lisa. I told you. <laughs> so me and Lisa's uh, in line. We're walking in line, walking in line, and there's some black folks there selling Trump hats. And I was like, what? What in the world? Because uh, <laughs> I was looking at it because I was thinking, I thought I was going to be the only black person here. <laughs> Nah, but uh, I was curious to see why they were doing it. And my friend Lisa, uh, she was in that same boat. And then again, talk about perspective, it kind of clicked with me because growing up in the community I grew up in, uh, in, people sold drugs. And it wasn't because they was trying to hurt people in the community. It's, hey, that's the only way I know how to live, so therefore I'm gonna do what I gotta do to uh, support my family and myself. And when I see that perspective, I'm thinking, oh, I'd much rather you sell hats than go out there and deal drugs in your community. So I'm standing in line and while we're going, while we're uh, going in line is these two couples, Joe and Ann. And I'm standing in line and from what I know, I'm the only black person in line. So I see people like, look at me. So I noticed that and Joe, uh, he didn't know how to interact with me. So it was like small talk, small talk. And then Ann, she asked me, she said, oh, so Democrat or Republican? And I'm like, oh, I don't like to put myself in a box. So um, after that, her husband, uh, he said, oh, well, he said, I understand what you mean. He said, I used to be a Democrat. And he said, but now I'm a Republican. And same thing with Ann. And I said, oh, why was that change? And she, he said, well, you know, I think being a Democrat is for young kids. And when you're a Democrat, you know, you really think what you're feeling. And being a Republican, we really uh, use our brain as, or like you think analytical when you get older. And when I heard that, I'm like, hmm, interesting. And then I look. <laughs> Uh, at my friend Lisa, and uh, she's short, but she got a lot of she got a lot of fight in her. So she's like, mm. she's just looking at. Her. But then she didn't say nothing. She kept her composure. Uh, at some point, it so happened that Joe and my friend Lisa was talking, and then me and Ann was talking. We was having small talk, and by that time, we're getting closer up front. And then I see the people in the line where I used to be at, and I'm thinking, oh yeah, I, I gotta get in because y'all ain't getting in. There's no way. So um, when me and Ann was talking, um, she was telling me, she said, hey, you know, this is the second time I'm wearing my, uh, my Make America Great Again hat. And I'm like, oh, really? She said, I said, why is that? And she said, well, the first time I wore in Great Falls, and, I, and they're both from Idaho, so they uh, uh, drove all the way here. And I'm like, okay. And she said, but now I'm wearing it here because I know that it's good because it's like-minded people here, so I feel comfortable. I'm like, what do you mean you feel comfortable? And she said, oh, because uh, she said, you don't know what those Democrats are doing? Or uh, it's unsafe, like, it's not safe wearing that hat here because all these things that can happen to you. And in my head, I'm like, huh, interesting. So <laughs> as the conversation went on, uh, it kind of ended with, uh, she was like, hey, you know, it was really, I appreciate having this conversation. You're really easy to talk to. But that time when she was mentioning that uh, hat, my mind kind of paused in that, in that sense, just because, it's all about perspective, right? And I feel like when she was talking about being unsafe, I really understood that perspective because I think that's how I feel 
being a black man in America, um, the only difference is I can't take off my hat. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. Jason Forges is interested in creating a space where facilitated social issue discussions can be had while figuring out actionable steps to move forward. Jason is originally from Florida and has triumphantly survived two Missoula winters. Thanks for listening to the Tell Us Something podcast. If you enjoy the stories you hear, please rate us on Apple Music or Stitcher. Leaving us a review and rating really helps get the podcast to more listeners, and we want to reach as many people as possible. Please rate and review us and then recommend the Tell Us Something podcast to one person who has never heard it before. Thank you. We have two more stories in this episode. Before we get to them, I want to take a moment to thank our title sponsors, CabinetParts.com, the number one source for cabinet hardware since 1997. Anyone searching for the best kitchen cabinet hardware at a great price needs to go to CabinetParts.com. CabinetParts.com combines knowledgeable hardware specialists with the best online shopping experience nationwide. CabinetParts.com is the direct source for all of your cabinet hardware needs. The Good Food Store. Supporting western Montana farmers and ranchers for almost 50 years, The Good Food Store supports the local folks creating their own beer, salsa, baked goods, ice cream, and more. Learn more at GoodFoodStore.com. Logjam Presents. Headquartered in Missoula, Montana, Logjam Presents is an independently and privately owned live entertainment company. Logjam Presents is the exclusive operator and promoter of the Kettle House Amphitheater, the Wilma, the Top Hat Lounge, and Ogren Park. Logjam Presents has created a unique artist and concertgoer experience that is unmatched in the Northwest. Logjampresents.com. And we are excited to announce our new storytelling workshops. Let Tell Us Something help you craft your own story one-on-one. We also offer group workshops with corporate and nonprofit pricing. To schedule a workshop and to learn more, go to tellussomething.org slash workshops. All right, let's get back to the storytelling. Lily Clark shares her story of feeling alienated as the only white woman in Kathmandu until she befriends a very special 11-year-old boy. She calls her story Mushrooms, a Chicken, and a Bean. Thanks for listening. Hajur, namaskar. Mero nam Liliho. Ma jungli chao kobare ma anusandang garchu. Tapailai sanga kora garchu. This is how I introduced myself on my Fulbright in Nepal. Hello, my name is Lily. I'm studying wild mushrooms. May I speak with you? <laughs> Kathmandu, a cacophonic kaleidoscope of traffic and stray dogs, of incense stuck in overburnt fruit, of cooking oils laced with cardamom, turmeric, and chili, of conversation, of bantering, of bartering, a six-hour bus ride takes you 80 miles south to Chitwan, and then a 45-minute tuk-tuk rattling over the fresh roads takes you to Kulesimal, a village along Nepal's Indian border. Banana trees sway between mustard fields. Birds coo in, pink dawns and blue evenings, and people walk slowly. This is where I stayed for four months studying how mushrooms affect the culture and economy of the area. During my time in Kulesimal, 
I challenged myself to become conversational in Nepali. I was being able to say, Kana deri mito bio. The food was very good. Or, Sapana sanga deknu bio. Did you dream? Was often not enough. In one of my first nights in Kulesimal, I was eating steamed rice and spiced lentil soup with my, at my host family's restaurant, a nice word for the local bar. And I watched a young boy whip in and out of the curtain bamboo huts, clenching five cents in tips and empty vodka bottles so that people could come and drink without acknowledgement. As I continued to eat, I heard a faucet come on, the drain clogged with white rice, and a cracked voice singing. I got up and peeked around the blue cement wall, and there was Naveen. At the age of 11, Naveen had left his family to come and live with my host family and work for their restaurant so that he could pay for his grade school. During my time in Kulesimal, I would come home exhausted every day from trying to interpret through observations or trying to translate at a toddler's level of a language and from being a spectacle. Look at how the white woman drinks tea. Look at how she quickly she walks. Look at how she struggles to eat with her hand or rides her purple bicycle around asking people about mushrooms. <laughs> At the end of each day, I would come home and close my door and read Desert Solitaire. And I would come out, and my family would ask me, what were you doing in there? Privacy is not a concept in Nepal. I always looked forward to coming home to Naveen. Thankfully, with him, I didn't need words. In the mornings, he would chase away the dogs at our 5 a.m. morning runs. I'd treat us to sweet milk tea, we'd kick around the soccer ball, draw mushrooms with colored pencils. I always looked forward to coming home to Naveen because I wasn't a white woman. I always looked forward to coming home to Naveen because then I was Lily. One day, Naveen asked me if I'd like to come and meet his family. I said, yes, of course. Only my host father had ever gone once. We picked a day, hopped on our bicycles, picked up two bags of sweet oranges that his sister loved, and I made the honest mistake of insisting that we get a kukura chicken rather, rather than kukura komasu, chicken meat, and he stuffed a live seven-pound hen into my bike basket. <laughs> Over narrow trails, fresh dirt roads, and a dry riverbed, we arrived at his family's home. I came up to about here on me, and while we waited for his mother to return from the fields, we ducked in over the earthen porch. And on the left, there was a small earthen cooking pit, a single greasy pan, and three steps to the right, one, two, three, seven wooden planks covered in mats and blankets where his mother, younger sister, younger brother, and newborn baby brother slept. His sister, Ashmina, was also particularly radiant. I watched her spin and twirl in her soiled yellow dress, ripping apart the sweet oranges and letting the juice drip onto her bare toes. I'm not sure whatever happened to the chicken. <laughs> <laughs> when we left, 
biking over again the rugged terrain, Nabeen reached over from his bicycle and grabbed my hand, and that's how we returned home. Eight days ago, this was the end of my story. Sometime after I left Nepal two years ago, I found out that Nabeen had left my host family, had left school to return to his home and then to go to Kathmandu to find work. I knew that Nabeen does not need me, and I knew that Nabeen would find his own way. I also knew that Nabeen did not have a safety net, and for the last year, I've been sending some money to his family for food to try to find a phone number, try to find where he might be working or where he might be living so that he could connect with my good friends in Kathmandu. Seven days ago, my friend Tricky in Kathmandu called me and sent me a picture of still radiant and a little bit more vain 13-year-old Naveen. <laughs> He's happy. He's working at a restaurant in Kathmandu, living with the family there, and smiled when he said, I work till 2 a.m. every day and can send home $80 a month to my family. I am so proud of Naveen. And I have questions. I believe that with love comes great responsibility. And I ask, what is my responsibility in this case? How do I offer my help without taking away someone's power? Someone who at the age of 12 left his family village, took a six-hour bus ride to get to a big city, find work, find a place to stay, and is now supporting his family. I speculate, and I do not have answers. Thank you, my community of Missoula. Thanks, Lily. Lily Clark grew up in Condon, Montana, where she attended the one-room K-8 schoolhouse, Salmon Prairie School. The frequent wildfires and fire morels that followed sparked her interest in understanding the ecological and social consequences of wildfire and wild mushroom harvests in rural areas. Following her Fulbright scholarship in Nepal, she returned to Missoula to pursue graduate studies in wildfire at the University of Montana and reconnect with Missoula and its people. In our final story, Kelsey Stam Jimenez takes 20 Montana high school students to Cambodia and they encounter an unexpected challenge while hiking in the jungle. She calls her story, Into the Jungle and Out of My Mind. Thanks for listening. So six years ago, I took a group of 20 Montana high school students and two teachers into the jungle in Cambodia. And after having traveled two hours by boat to get to our trailhead, we arrive at this beautiful sandy beach. And being that we're in a tropical country, uh, it was already starting to get hot. We weren't even doing anything yet, and we're already sweating. And this was my first time having done something like this. And so in my head, I'm going through this kind of mental checklist of everything that we needed ready. And so I'm thinking water. Water was the first thing on this list uh, because we were going to be hiking for two days and spending the night in the jungle and carrying all of the water ourselves. And so I'm handing out water to the kids and I hand out these water bottles to Cassie, this high school kid who had just been trouble the entire time. 
And she glares at me. She's too busy flirting with boys, so I think, all right, I'll just pack more water for her. And then I start looking at people's footwear, because I want to make sure that we don't have any sprayed ankles, everybody's got good sturdy shoes, check, we're good there. Appropriate hiking attire. I look over at our Cambodian guides, and they're wearing flip-flops and shorts and t-shirts, and I think, oh, good, we're set. And then the last thing, mosquito repellent, because the jungles are really buggy, right, in tropical countries. Had plenty of that, because I hate bugs. And I'm feeling really good. I'm feeling confident about our team. We have these two high school teachers who are very capable leaders. There's Angie, she's a high school science teacher, and she had spent years taking troubled teens into the wilderness on trips, and she was super hardcore. And there was Maria. Maria had been a PE teacher for 30 odd years. She was the most fit 60-year-old I'd ever met. And the kids were excited. We had been spending a couple weeks in this country that was so different. And they were finally getting to do something that was somewhat familiar. These kids knew hiking and they knew camping. And we were going to be doing some really cool things, like we were going to sleep in these hammocks that you zip over yourselves that have these mosquito nets, again, the bugs. And there was a chance that we could see wild elephants, which was also really cool. And so the kids are excited, and we're starting down the path towards the jungle. And as we enter the jungle, it gets really dark really quickly. And we move along this trail, and the trees and the vegetation just gets denser and denser, to the point where hardly any sunlight is coming through the canopy. And it's wet, and it's musty from all the decay of leaves and whatever else in the jungle. And pretty soon, as the jungle closes in around us, we're on a single-file trail. And the kids are still excited, and they're walking quickly and laughing, and pretty soon, I hear a scream up ahead. And I think, oh, what is that? So I leave my spot in the back of the line and run up, and there's this girl screaming, shaking her hands, and something brown is on her hand. And she's yelling, leech. And she's shaking her hands, and she's trying to get off, and she flings it off, and it lands right on her cheek. And then she starts screaming even louder. And the two Cambodian guides run down. They take the leech off. We calm her down. She gets back in line. I go back to the end of my line. I think, whew, that's over. That was disgusting. And so we keep on walking. Pretty soon, I hear screams up and down the line. We were all covered in leeches. And I start feeling pricks on my arms, on my legs, even under the tongues of my shoes. It was like we were being eaten alive. And I looked down at the forest floor, and it was literally moving. You could see leeches coming in from all sides towards us. And now, leeches do this really gross thing where they stand up on their little leech hind ends and they sway, like trying to sense you, trying to find you. And then as soon as they find you, they stop and they leap. And so the line, the line keeps stopping. None of us can move forward because every time somebody finds a leech, we all have to stop, they have to pick it off. Meanwhile, the rest of us are like dancing in place, like trying to keep our feet off the ground because we're just live bait just standing there, desperately waiting for this line to continue. And we continue hiking like that for three hours. It was hell. <laughs> 
And we finally get to this spot where we can take a break, and it's this stream with these giant rocks, and we're free from the leeches for a moment, where we can have lunch. And we're handed this lunch of fish and rice wrapped in banana leaves. And I look around at the kids, and their faces are white. And they're not talking, and they're not eating. Not even these high school boys are eating. And I walk up to Angie, to this teacher, and I, I say, Angie, how are you doing? And she looks at me and she says, Kelsey, I can't do this anymore. And I thought, oh my God, hardcore Angie can't do this anymore? Like, what does this mean for the rest of us? And so I'm thinking about this, and, and Cassie, the student, walks up to me, which was really strange because she would never normally volunteer to talk to me, ever. And she walks up to me, and she's just looking distressed. And now, the guys had told us somewhat earlier that leeches can smell blood. And this is somewhat of a disputed fact, but it was really bad news because when leeches bite you, they inject this anticoagulant that just makes your blood run. And so our group, having had leeches everywhere, just had bloody spots all over our shirts. People had blood that was running down their heads. And the Cambodian guides had tried to bandage people up the best they could. Looked like a war zone. And so Cassie walks up to me. I say, Cassie, what's going on? And she goes, Kelsey, I'm on my period. And I think, oh my god, can leeches get up there? Are they up there already? How would we even know if they were up there? How would we get them out? And I reassure her that no, no, everything's fine, don't worry, you're good. But inside, I was freaking out and panicking. But I was responsible for her, I was responsible for all these kids, so no way could I show how terrifying that thought was. And so I'm thinking about options for what to do. And A, we can walk back the way we came for three hours. And looking at the kids, I didn't think that anybody could handle that. And even if we did do that, could we even get a boat to get back to our village? The other option was to keep going. The guides told me that we weren't even halfway there yet and that the leeches are going to get worse because it's even more wet as you get deeper into the jungle. Neither of those seem like viable options. And I'm thinking about this and I see our Cambodian guides and they're, they're talking on these radios and they are talking in Khmer in the Cambodian language. So I didn't really know what they were saying. And after a little while I hear a motor and I think, that's weird. We're in the middle of nowhere, hours away from any other people. And it's getting louder. And I'm hearing more motors, and more and more. And pretty soon, I see a motorcycle come crashing through the jungle on a trail that I didn't even know existed, followed by another one and another one. Well, the Cambodian guides had rallied everybody in the village where we were staying who had a motorcycle to come in and rescue us. And they're slipping and sliding down this muddy trail, and I'm thinking, we're saved. And now, all of the kids prior to the trip had filled out a contract that said, in no way, shape, or form were they ever to get on a motorcycle. <laughs> the contract now reads, except with Kelsey's permission. <laughs> and so we get on the motorbikes, and we go whizzing down the trail, over tree trunks and under branches, and I felt such a profound sense of relief that we were saved. And it was also the first time that I was able to notice the jungle around me. 
And it was beautiful. And there were so many different kinds of plants and flowers. And we go through this field where elephants had just been through and was pockmarked with big footprints. And we rise over the mountain as the sun's starting to set. And we head into the village. And there, we were able to take baths. We took these bucket baths, which is basically just a little plastic bowl that you douse yourself with cold water. Um, but it was the best bath that I'd ever had. And I meet the kids for dinner, which was, again, rice. And it was the best rice that I had had. And the kids are laughing and joking with each other again, having really bonded through this traumatic experience together. And I look over at Cassie, and Cassie continues to glare at me and flirt with boys. I think, oh, good, we're back to normal. <laughs> and I start reflecting on the day and the fact that I had spent that whole day wishing that I had been anywhere else but there. And now I felt so grateful for the Cambodian people who were so kind and generous and for this country that was so strange but we were learning so much from and that we learned what we were capable of. And I learned what I was capable of. And now Cambodia is one of my favorite places in the world. And now I've also remembered to add leech repellent to my checklist. <laughs> Thanks, Kelsey. Kelsey Stam Jimenez is program director at the Mansfield Center at the University of Montana, where she engages students and adults throughout the state in international educational experiences. Originally from Paradise, Montana, Kelsey is passionate about providing international opportunities in the Big Sky State and connecting peoples and cultures. When she's not planning her next adventure, she is busy chasing her two-year-old with her husband, Ben, and their two smelly hounds. Tell Us Something is proud to be fiscally sponsored by Missoula Community Foundation, a 501c3 organization. Missoula Community Foundation has been providing leadership to Missoula nonprofits and inspiring long-term philanthropy in Missoula since 2007. MissoulaCommunityFoundation.org Thanks to our sponsors, Missoula Federal Credit Union, Don't Just Bank, Belong, MissoulaFCU.org Missoula Bone and Joint, providing superior clinical orthopedic care to their patients for over 60 years. MissoulaBoneAndJoint.com Access Physical Therapy. Access Physical Therapy has an enthusiastic team dedicated to providing compassionate and comprehensive care to their clients. Learn more at AccessMissoula.com Missoula Broadcasting Company. Locally owned and operating four stations, the Trail 103.3, Missoula's Quality Rock, and part of our unique Western Montana community, featuring local DJs who love Missoula and know their music. Jack FM 105.9, playing what they want. U 104.5 FM, your at-work listening station. And ESPN 102.9, focusing on city, state, and regional sports, giving exposure and insight to teams and athletes in and around Western Montana. Learn more at MissoulaBroadcasting.com. Enlighten Lab Float Center. Enlighten Lab is a spa featuring sensory deprivation or floating as a wellness therapy. Unplug, reset, and recharge in their state-of-the-art float tanks or sweat it out in their infrared sauna. Learn more at EnlightenLab.com. That's E-N-L-Y-T-E-N-L-A-B.com. Gecko Designs. Visit the Gecko Designs team on North Higgins in Missoula or online at GeckoDesigns.com. Buildy Design, Montana stickers, mugs, and apparel with a twist. Etsy.com slash shop slash Buildy Design. Thanks to Cash for Drunkers who provided the music for the podcast. Find them at cashfordrunkersmusic.com. Podcast production by me, Mark Moss. Thank you to everyone who attends the live events, 
Those of you who download the podcast, and most especially to the storytellers, Mike Jakubczyk, Jason Forges, Lily Clark, and Kelsey Stan Jimenez. The next live Tell Us Something event is May 9th at the Myrna Loy in Helena, Montana. The theme is Getting Away With It. We are taking pitches for that show right now. To pitch your story, call 406-203-4683. We are also taking story pitches for the June 12th Tell Us Something live event in Missoula. The theme there is What Are The Chances? If you'd like to pitch your story, again, please call 406-203-4683. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to the Tell Us Something podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can stream all of the stories ever told on the Tell Us Something stage for free at tellussomething.org.